0: All right, Titus Chapter Three well i 'm sorry to disappoint those who may be disappointed, but i 'm not going to be teaching on mother 's day today. I said that to somebody else this morning, and they said, Good I was not a mother. <laughs> But ladies, uh, if you're at the ladies' uh, luncheon, you know that we focused on uh, God's calling of women to discipleship in the New Testament. We kind of did a survey that way. Um, And so because we did the ladies' luncheon that way, I thought it would be okay, I hope, uh, to continue on in Titus this Sunday. And so that's what we're going to do in Titus chapter 3. And this is actually going to be our last message in the book of Titus. It's been 18 months. It's been a year and a half in the book of Titus. We started it in lockdown. In fact, if you go back and see the introduction and those, remember we did a whole series on the qualifications of elders and so on, that was all done in my office on video while we were under lockdown. Uh, But now we come to the end of the book of Titus. And before we get into our passage, I just want to maybe capture imagination a little bit. If I were to hand you out a piece of paper, fold it in half... And one side of the paper said, essentials to a healthy church. And the other side of the paper said, enemies of a healthy church. I wonder what you would write in the one column under essentials to a healthy church. Furthermore, I wonder what you'd write in the other column, enemies of a healthy church. What is it that you think is absolutely essential for a church to function as God has designed it? On the other hand, what are those things that absolutely have no place in the church and that threaten the church? I wonder what you'd put in those columns, but then I wonder if we were to do that and then compare notes, how similar or dissimilar they would be. The fact is, people are looking for all sorts of things in churches, and people have all sorts of ideas as to what makes a healthy church and what does not. If it were left up to us to design a church by committee, I think we'd be forever locked, deadlocked in disagreement, possibly. Not only that, but because of our sinfulness. If God left it up to us to design a church or to determine what makes a healthy church in a culture so driven by consumerism, we would probably prioritize those things that really cater or pamper us in a culture that is driven by individualism individualism over community. We would probably design a church, again, that makes us feel good about ourselves. I mean, our culture is all about affirmation, isn't it? Never wanting to be challenged, never wanting to be confronted. And so we're happy, I think, and we should be, that God has not left it up to us to determine what makes a healthy church and what are the enemies of a healthy church. What we've been learning in the book of Titus is that God has spoken very clearly as to the ingredients of a healthy church. I mean, the entire book is for that purpose of Titus setting in order the churches on the island of Crete. And when I say churches, there was loose collections of believers in, in towns on the island of Crete, but they hadn't yet been organized. And so Titus' job was to go town to town and actually uh, establish identifiable leadership and uh, really set up churches. We see that in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. And we are going to do a little bit of review before we get into our text today. Titus chapter 1 verse 5 said, this is why I left you in Crete, Paul says to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order. And so as we start to think what is a well-ordered church or what is a healthy church, this is a very helpful book. What follows that statement in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 and the rest of this letter is really that profile of a healthy church. And so Paul tells Titus what are some of the absolute essentials to be found in a healthy church. And so this morning, this is really an invitation to bow the knee to Scripture. Regardless of what our ideas of a healthy church are, uh, we say, okay, well, we we should be able to agree that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, and so let's, let's kind of bow the knee and sit at the feet of Paul as he teaches Titus what a healthy church is, and allow that to mold and shape our understanding of church. And so Paul begins to list the things in this small letter the things that characterize a healthy church. It's not comprehensive. It's not comprehensive. You're not going to get everything from the book of Titus, but the things that are in Titus are extremely valuable and instructive. And so remember, I don't know if you remember, 18 months ago, uh, I I, I suspect that many of us uh, in our pajamas drinking coffee with our bowl of Cheerios, watching the live stream, probably weren't paying a whole lot of attention to what was being preached. So I think some review is helpful. But in chapter 1, Paul begins to list the essentials, and immediately after telling Titus, you need to set things in order on the island of Crete and make sure that these churches are established, he begins to speak of elders. Look for men who are qualified that you can uh, set up as leaders in the midst of these congregations. And so he gives some characteristics in chapter 1. He says, find men who are faithful. Find a man who's faithful to his wife. Find a man who has believing children, who are not known to be disobedient or unruly or indulging in sin. Find a man who's not arrogant. Find a man who doesn't lose his temper. Find a man who doesn't get drunk. Find a man who's not violent. Find a man who's not greedy for money. Find a man who's hospitable. He loves people. Find a man who loves what is good. Find a man who's self-controlled. Find a man who lives a righteous life, dignified life. Find somebody who's holy. Find somebody who's disciplined. Find somebody who holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught by the apostles. And find somebody who's capable and willing to instruct in sound doctrine and even able to rebuke those who contradict it. So look for men like that in town to town and appoint them as elders. That's number one. So we know... uh, a. Crucial, essential element of a healthy church is qualified leadership, okay? So we see that right there in chapter 1. Next, Paul tells Titus that the believers in a well-ordered church... So we're not just talking about leadership here in the book of Titus, but then Titus begins to talk about members and what should be the character of the members. And so he begins to show us in chapter 2, verse 11, that the believers in a well-ordered church are those who have renounced ungodliness, he says... He says that the believers in a church are those who have renounced worldly passions. These are those who exercise self-control, those who are righteous and dignified, those who maintain godliness in the midst of a godless age, those whose entire lives are lived in the anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. That's all in chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. He then even drills down even further and breaks it down into the demographic groups and says, so that means that if you have older men in the church... They're going to be level-headed and thoughtful. The older men are going to carry themselves with dignity. The older men are going to be self-controlled. The older men are going to be sound in the faith. The older men are going to be loving. The older men are going to be faithful. This is a healthy church. He says the older women will live in a way that's worthy of respect. The older women will not be gossips. They will not be slanderers. The older women will not drink too much. The older women will teach the younger women. And then the younger women will love their husbands and children. The younger women will be self-controlled. The younger women will be pure. The younger women will take care of their households. The younger women will respect their husbands as leaders in the home. Then he says to the younger men, be self-controlled. So Paul gives essentials for a healthy church in leadership and essentials in the healthy church in the membership. But then he continues the profile of a well-ordered church into chapter 3. And he says that such a church has a reputation, collectively, as one body, we have a reputation of what? Remember, being submissive to rulers and authorities, having an overall attitude of obedience, being ready to perform good works, having a reputation of not speaking evil of others, having a reputation of not being argumentative. Collectively, we have a reputation of an uncommon gentleness and courtesy towards all people in and outside the church. And so that's a pretty good profile so far. The essentials of a healthy church. Then Paul summarizes even more in chapter 3, verse 3. He reminds Titus what behaviors that the behaviors that once characterized the Cretans or all believers prior to salvation have no place in the church. And so he says: a healthy church is one filled with people who have renounced their former foolishness and disobedience, who have or are no longer led astray by false philosophy or thinking, who no longer indulge in their fleshly passions or pleasures, who are no longer malicious or envious or hateful. That's a high calling, isn't it? It's a high calling not just for the leaders, but also for the members. In all of this, Paul is careful to tell us, because there's a lot of like ethics there, like character and behavior and so on. But Paul is careful to show us, That all of this is rooted in good theology. All of this flows out of what we know about God. And so in chapter 2, verse 11, "...for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, or are zealous for good works. That's the theology. So Jesus died for us, he redeemed us, and he's actually making a people who live this way. So it's not just reformation. And then in chapter 3, verse 3 through 7, he gives us another theological high point. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior, of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so those are the two theological high points. From which everything else we just said flows. So that's a healthy church. The essentials of a healthy church. And you notice there's a focus on character and commitments. And notice that we're all included in that. It's not just leadership, it's also membership. And, and all leadership does really is exemplify the things that the membership is called to with the addition of being able to teach. And so Paul gives us a powerful list, largely focusing upon character and commitments. And doing, after doing all of this, in verse 8, and now we're getting close to our text for today, uh, verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And there that theme continues throughout. Is that pen going to distract you that just fell? Is anybody going to be distracted by it? Now you're you're going to be staring at it the whole time. So (laughs) I will be distracted thinking you're distracted. So there we go. So Paul continues the theme in verse 8 of good works all throughout his letter to Titus. And so he says, insist on these things. In other words, these are non-negotiable. And that's why I use the word essentials. Paul says these things are, what does he say in verse 8? These things are excellent and profitable for people. So again, what Paul has laid out here are those things that make a church which strives for excellence. These things will be characteristic of a church that wants to be spiritually excellent. When a church has a membership with this type of character and these types of commitments and a leadership which exemplifies and teaches the same, everyone in the church will be benefited from it. And so it says these are profitable. These things are profitable for people. And so, Calvary, if we want to pursue excellence and have a church which serves to the spiritual benefit of all involved, we serve to fulfill that pattern that Paul lays out for us. Now... I started out by saying if you had two columns and say, what are the essentials of a healthy church? And we just listed a bunch of those very quickly. But now the question of how about the enemies of a healthy church? Well, I mean, you could just take the opposite of everything we just said. And so an arrogant pastor is an enemy of a healthy church. A pastor who loses his temper is an enemy of a healthy church. A pastor who doesn't especially like people is an enemy of a healthy church. A pastor who's undisciplined and unholy. A pastor who doesn't faithfully teach apostolic doctrine, uh, that would be an enemy of a healthy church. A membership which is worldly. A membership which indulges in fleshly passions. A membership which is full of those who gossip. A membership which is impure. A membership which rejects God's design for home life. A membership which is rebellious against authorities. A membership uh, who couldn't care less about the return of Christ. Well, that's an enemy of a healthy church. You get the idea. But in our text today in verse 9 through 11, Paul returns to a theme that he started in chapter 1 in order to make it abundantly clear that there are some other things that kind of stand at the gate, that kind of stand at the doorway and threaten the health of a church. And so he warns against them and says, avoid these things. And so what is it, verse 9 through 11? But avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And notice what he says in verse 9 there. He says, avoid these things, why? For they are unprofitable and worthless. Well, where have you heard similar language? Well, in verse 8, he says that you're to devote yourselves to good works and all that stuff that came on before. Why? Because these things are excellent and profitable. These things are profitable. These things are unprofitable. These things are excellent. These things are worthless. And so what are the things that he warns against? He says foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, and the person who stirs up all those things, stirs up division. And so avoid all those things. And so for the remainder of our time together, we're going to look at those four things. You could just say four enemies of a healthy church. So what does he say first? I'm going to call it this. I'm going to say a healthy church avoids foolish speculations. A healthy church avoids foolish speculations. What does Paul say in verse 9? But avoid foolish controversies. Avoid foolish controversies. Have you ever been in a church where it seems as if the pastor loves controversy? Have you ever met fellow believers who seem to love controversy? If there's no drama, they make it because that's where they thrive. Some men love controversy, so much so that they not only seek it out, but when it's not there, they stir it up. These are those men and women who do not hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Instead, they waste their time on foolish controversies and speculation. These are those men and women who know little about how to properly interpret the Scripture. Yet their ignorance is coupled with arrogance, which is an awful combination: ignorance and arrogance. Their ignorance is coupled with arrogance, and so they have no problem trying to wield the scriptures, speaking confidently while spouting nonsense." Titus chapter one, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter one, verse five, another young pastor that Paul mentored. Paul writes, "The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions again ignorance and arrogance they don't know what they're talking about The word foolish here in verse 9 literally could be translated and means dull stupid absurd and even according to strongs blockheaded There's no redeeming qualities here. No redeeming qualities is such foolishness. Stirring up controversy, leading people into controversy, deviating from the Word of God and focusing on controversy. No redeeming qualities. It's just foolishness. And so Paul is saying if someone is in the church and always leaning towards controversy, recognize that they're behaving foolishly. And as he's going to say, have nothing to do with them. Such behavior is a silly waste of time. Complete worthlessness. No value. Such behavior does nothing positive for the church. Produces nothing of value. Nothing but fighting and friction. And so, if we know someone who claims to be a believer but he's or she is always embroiled in controversy, we are to understand that this person is actually quite spiritually immature, because foolish controversy and fighting and quarrelling is a mark of spiritual immaturity. First Timothy chapter six verse three says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Arrogance and ignorance. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. Who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Listen, we will face some opposition for preaching and teaching the word of God. Absolutely. But if you are a person, or if your pastor is a person, who's in constant friction, then there's an imbalance somewhere. Not only do some church attenders stir up foolish controversy and focus on personal speculations, but some pastors are guilty of the same. And so Paul had to warn Timothy again in 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. You know it does nothing but cause fights. Stop it. Have nothing to do with them. Don't get sucked into them, Timothy. We recognize a fool when we see one and a foolish controversy when it arises. So know enough to avoid it. Paul doesn't even advocate answering somebody who is foolishly stirring up controversy. The idea is recognize a fool when you see a fool. Recognize a foolish controversy when you see a foolish controversy. Don't even answer it, just avoid it. Reminds us of Proverbs 26.4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Don't give a fool what he wants, which is attention. Instead, Paul says, just avoid Foolish speculation, silly controversies, they do nothing to contribute to the godliness of the church. And so they are, in fact, enemies of the church. Next, he says what? And this is going to, be, going to seem incredibly relevant to you, I know. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies. And now some of you are upset because you've been online and you've been researching your family tree and now you see that you can't do that. You instinctively know that's not what that means, Right? Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. What is this? Some of the false teachers that were threatening the churches on the island of Crete were Jewish. And these Jewish teachers would take the genealogies of the Old Testament and they would expand upon them. They'd create elaborate backgrounds and details regarding the lesser-known figures, even giving names to unnamed characters. And so who was Cain's wife? Well, they would have a name and an entire background in history. All of Adam and Eve's children they would give names to and give stories and backgrounds to. And they would just create ge- uh, endless genealogies that just continued forever and then create fanciful stories and attach them to each of those characters. And so they'd create mythologies upon the back of the Old Testament. And this is why Paul is sure to tell Titus in chapter 1 verse 9 that a qualified elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught why? Because in verse 10 of chapter 1 he says the circumcision party is there, the Jews are there, those who were what? Teaching verse 14 of chapter 1 Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. This is extra biblical speculation. There's no place in the church Paul had to say something similar to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, at, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, we don't have that exact kind of pressure, do we? We're not being faced by Jewish mythology. Here. But we do encounter those in our day who seek out biblical passages from which they can launch questions and speculations. We do encounter those who turn gray areas black and really preach from the white spaces in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And these are what I call trifling distractions. The church avoids foolish speculations. The church also avoids trifling speculations. There is a breed of preacher who loves to mine the scriptures for vagaries, who loves to mine the scripture for obscurities. And I don't know what your background is, if you've ever heard this type of preaching before. But these are people who especially love the Old Testament because it lends itself more often, because it's not as much didactic uh, teaching like in the New. So the Old Testament, you have a lot of narrative, and some things are kind of obscure with the Hebrew writing. And so they're able then to speculate, and they're able to be very novel in their interpretation. And you've heard preaching like this, and I hope you discern that it's not right, Uh, but taking Old Testament stories and making uh, applications that were never intended, and um, interpretations that were never God's design as He inspired the original authors, Uh, but those who are just speculating upon the the Scriptures and uh, really just delving into trifling distractions. Oftentimes, what comes to the surface, using the Scriptures this way, not teaching the Scriptures, but using the Scriptures, often what comes to the surface with such teachers is whatever their pet hobby horses are. Whatever they want to teach, whatever they want to push, they just used the Scriptures to preach their opinion instead of submitting their opinions to the Scriptures. The Jews were doing this. Uh, they were using the Scripture to create mythology so that they could teach whatever they wanted to teach while still also being able to claim that they had the authority of the Scripture on their side. So we face the same thing today. You hear men Uh, preaching the Word of God, and they're reading the Scripture, and it seems as if what they're saying is the weight of Scripture. But if you actually take some time to uh, check them out to see whether or not they're preaching the original intent of the authors, you'd be woefully disappointed. A healthy church, as we're going to see in a moment, has a leadership who rightly handles the Word of God, properly teaching the Scripture, looking for the meaning as intended by God, so that the people are fed well. An enemy of a healthy church, foolish speculations, trifling distractions. Next of all, a healthy church is a church that avoids loveless argumentation. Foolish speculations, trifling distractions, loveless argumentation. Look in verse 9 again of Titus 3. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, dissensions. Arguments, strife, quarreling, discord, rivalry. Don't, Don't need to go very deep here, do we? Other than the fact that unity is a mark of a healthy church. A healthy church is one who endeavors to keep unity, treasures unity, prizes unity, works to maintain unity. And if unity is to be prized and treasured and maintained and protected, then together we as a church body must exercise certain characteristics which maintain unity. We can't just say we're all about unity if we're not willing to take upon ourselves a certain character that sustains unity. And so Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all what? Humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if so, if we are eager to maintain unity, what? You must be humble. You must be gentle. You got to be patient. You got to be willing to put up with one another, bear with one another in love. Why? Because unity is to be treasured and prized and maintained. And it can't be done unless we take upon ourselves that fruit of the Spirit, that Christ-like character, that humble gentleness. This is peacemaking character. And this is a sign of spiritual maturity. Those who are continually the cause of division are unspiritual and immature. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul, in rebuking the Corinthians for their constant divisions, says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. For you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So he says two things there. He says, number one, you're babies. I can only feed you with milk. That's all you could handle. You're spiritually immature. Then he says you're fleshly. To be spiritually immature is to still be uh, fascinated and devoted to the flesh. If there's disunity, there's spiritual immaturity. If there's disunity, there's sin. Before we read of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, we read about the characteristics of the flesh. And the characteristics of the flesh, according to Paul in Galatians 5.20, include what? Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. That's the flesh. So a church that is known for disunity and infighting and strife is a church which is immature, spiritually immature and fleshly. James says in James 4.1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's just your flesh. If someone is a divisive person, they're not a spiritual person. They're operating in their flesh, driven by their own passions. Sure, they might present a case as to why they're causing strife and division, but at the end of the day, if the end result is not the building up of the body, then they're in the wrong, and they should be avoided. Such dissension was such a continual problem in Corinth that when Paul later on was going to go visit the city, he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 12.20, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may, uh, and that you may find me not as you wish. What he's saying is, I'm a little bit concerned that if I come visit you, I'm going to find that your congregation is a mess. I'm not going to find in you what I want to see, and you're not going to like me when I see it. He says that perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit and disorder. What he's saying is such behavior is such that will incur the wrath of the apostle. Dissension, division, disunity. These are enemies of a healthy church, and so they should be avoided. Foolish speculations, trifling distractions, loveless argumentation. Lastly, a healthy church avoids legalistic misinterpretations. Look in verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Quarrels about the law. As I already mentioned, some of the enemies of the Cretan churches were Jews. Legalistic Jews, some who are trying to add law to grace, some who are trying to convince them that they must be circumcised in order to be right with God. The question of circumcision was settled 15 years earlier at the Council of uh, the Jerusalem Council. So, so this should not have been debated. This had been settled by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Uh, circumcision was not necessary for salvation. In fact, what we learn biblically is that the circumcision of the flesh has now been replaced by the Holy Spirit who brings about the circumcision of the heart, which is an inward renewal and regeneration, as we saw in chapter 3. And so that question should have been done away with. And so Paul had to deal with this writing to the Galatians as well, however. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and it's an internal work by the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and has nothing to do with the law. And so circumcision or Sabbath-keeping or rituals or festivals all have been fulfilled by Christ and so should not be imposed upon the church. That's not to say the law isn't good for some things when used properly. First Timothy one eight says, "Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God, the glory of the blessed God for with which I have been trusted." What he's saying is this. The law serves a wonderful purpose. The law serves the purpose of exposing all of us as sinners. That's the purpose of the law. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring salvation. It just exposes us that we are sinners and we have a need for salvation. It prepares us to know we have a need for the Savior. The old covenant, the law, could never bring life. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so those who push law-keeping as necessary for salvation are preaching false doctrine. They are to be rejected out of hand. Now, again, we, we, we don't face the exact same pressure. But we do, frankly, encounter those who do not properly interpret the Scriptures, who don't understand the purpose of the Old Testament law. And as a result of their misinterpretation, they make bad application of the law. And so there are those who confuse the church with Israel, misapply the Old Testament law to the church, We still encounter those who don't understand the purpose of the law, who see it as possessing mandates for the church and seeing a mandate for us to impose the law upon our culture. So whether a legalist or an antinomian or an ascetic or a theonomist, all of these interpret or misinterpret the law and its purpose and should be rejected by a healthy church. A healthy church does not entertain such debates, but rather avoids them. Okay, so misinterpretation of the law. Now... So we're done with those four. Now, what's the solution to all of those? All four of those things that Paul just told Titus a healthy church avoids. What's the solution or, or what can, can can help us guard against all of those things or, or or derivations of those things? Titus chapter 1, verse 1. No, Titus chapter 1, verse 9. And I want you to listen to the context here because you're going to see two things grouped in the next three passages that I read. See if you can detect them. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, in giving the qualifications for elders, Paul says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that, here's the purpose, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Okay, now you're going to see a pattern in the next passage. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15. He says to young Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. I don't know if you see the pattern yet. What we see is an encouragement or an admonition to preach the word, hold firm to the trustworthy word, and immediately following because there's false teachings out there. There are false teachers out there. We see it again in 2 Timothy chapter 4. When people are just going to gather for themselves, teachers that say what they want to hear. Hey, whatever my political opinion of the day is, I'm going to find a preacher who affirms that. Uh, Whatever behaviors I want to indulge in, I'm just going to find a preacher who will affirm me in that. In each of those passages we just read, we see false teachers at the door. And the solution to defend against those false teachers is what? Preach the word. Hold firm to the trustworthy word. Rightly handle the word. That's the answer. The main protection against those four enemies that we just saw is just that, the faithful preaching of God's Word. A pastor or elders who hold firm to the trustworthy Word. Pastor or elders who are committed to rightly handle the Scripture. Proper interpretation. We can't just say we're preaching the Word because we're saying words from the Scripture if we're not properly interpreting the Scriptures. And so there are those who continue to teach and preach the Word of God in season, out of season, when it's popular, when it's unpopular, just faithfulness. And so that's essential in order to avoid these four things. Foolish speculations, trifling distractions, loveless argumentation, and legalistic misinterpretations. Now, why do we avoid all this? Titus 3.9, again, says because they're unprofitable and worthless. They're unprofitable and worthless. They don't build up, they don't bring value to the congregation, and so reject it. This is such a priority. This is such a priority. My wife thinks I'm almost done. She's closing her Bible. We're not. <laughs> I just broke the rule of our preaching class, which is when you're going to conclude, you've got to make it sound like you're concluding. I made it sound like I was concluding before I was going to conclude. I'm not ready to conclude yet. I've got another, another two pages, okay? This is such a priority to protect against these four things that look in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's how serious this, these things are. Avoid these things, and if there is somebody in your midst who's stirring up division using these things, warn him once, warn him twice. If he still doesn't heed, avoid them altogether. What is this? What it's saying is that if somebody's guilty of destroying the unity of the church through these things, warn him. You're destroying the unity. You're a threat to the health of our church. Stop. Then if he continues, the desire is that he repents and stops, he or she. But if he continues, then it says what? It says, after warning him once and then twice, there's another chance there. Then talk to him or her again and say, listen... You're still doing it. You're continuing causing division. Call them to repentance. And then after the second time, if this person refuses to stop creating division, harming the church, then what? Have nothing more to do with him. Why? Because through his or her divisive nature and their refusal to heed the warnings of the church... This person proves themselves to be what? What does it say? Warped. It says warped, that is perverted, distorted, sinful. His behavior and refusal to repent really exposes who he really is or who she really is. And so Paul says in verse 11 that such a person is self-condemned. The church isn't condemning them. They're self-condemned. They're being exposed for who they really are. They've condemned themselves by, number one, damaging the health of the church, and number two, not heeding the warnings of the church. And then the church then treats him in a way consistent with his behavior. He stubbornly refuses to repent and instead is determined to behave like an unbeliever, so the church treats him like an unbeliever. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul says, "...I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions." And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, and avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It's a matter of protection for the church. Divisive and deceptive. Deceiving the hearts of the naive. This sounds severe, I know. You think, well, Paul, you're so a hard-nosed, you know, the apostle here, he's just coming in with authority, and, you know, where's the grace? You know, all Paul's doing here is applying the principle which Jesus Christ gave to the church in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between him and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the ideal solution, right? I mean, that's the ideal conclusion. Somebody sins, you confront them, they repent, you gain your brother. Wonderful. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. And So there's that principle of two or three witnesses. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. So that it's, not just, it's, just not, it's not just an internal battle. There's no disagreement here. You can bring others along. They can kind of hear it out, and they can kind of gauge whether or not there's a legitimate offense here. You know? And then verse 17 says, If he refuses to listen to them... Take two or three along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. At this point, now the entire body needs to be involved. And if he refuses to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you like an outsider. Not an insider anymore, an outsider. So you put them out. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that's a reference back to chapter 16, where Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter, to the church, and says, listen, church, you have authority. You have authority and responsibility. Which is, if a situation like this arises, then you, we as a church, collectively need to speak into the life of this person and say, listen, you're divisive, you're harming the health of the church, and so repent If they refuse to repent, you say, well, if you're going to behave like an unbeliever, we're going to treat you like an unbeliever, and so you can no longer be part of this fellowship. And they're put out. That's the authority of the church. When I say the church, I mean us, you. Truly, I say, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. And there I just destroyed your favorite prayer meeting verse. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am. Uh, it had nothing to do with a prayer meeting. has nothing to do with, oh, you know, I don't go to church on Sunday, but, you know, uh, I got a couple people I meet with on Sunday because where two or three are gathered, there he is. That's not what it's talking about. It's just talking about the exercise of church discipline. This is talking about the authority that God has given to the church, and Jesus is saying is that when you exercise this type of discipline, you're doing it with my authority. I'm there with you in the midst. I've given you this authority through the keys of the kingdom, so exercise it if necessary. You say, but if unity is such a high priority to the church, then how does this serve that purpose? It serves the purpose by removing the source of disunity. This is essential because sinfulness spreads We're not going to read it, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when there was a man in the church who was guilty of sexual immorality and was unrepentant, the church, uh, Paul says, was to uh, what? Purge out, he says, the leaven. It's like yeast that just spreads and affects everything. So he's saying such sin in the church spreads. It infects. And so purge it out. The hope in all of this is that that sinning person, the person guilty of this, this, this disunity, The hope is that that person too will be saved or will come to repentance. And so this is for the health of the church and the health for that person because if that person is continuing on in rebellion, in sinfulness, we don't do them any favors by propping them up and pretending like everything's okay. And so the church brings the authority of the Word of God to bear in their life, uh, urges them to repentance, exposes their sinfulness to them, puts them out, Why? In the hopes that maybe they're going to reach the end of themselves and they're going to repent and they're going to come to Christ. That's going to be better for them and it's going to be better for the church. What we don't do is continue on with a lukewarm congregation that tolerates sin and division. That's not good for the church and it's not good for those who are guilty. And so, Paul says, warn him once, warn him twice, then if he doesn't repent, have nothing more to do with him. Well, in conclusion... The last year and a half, we've gotten a glimpse of the essentials of a healthy church. And our desire from the beginning was that as we read these things, we could read them and say, okay, well, let's apply it, right? I mean, if this is a picture of a healthy church, then how can we implement these things? And that's still our desire. We've gotten a glimpse of the essential elements to a healthy church, some warnings regarding enemies of a healthy church. And so our collective mandate here is, hey, let's work together. Let's work together to seek to follow this model. Let's, and I hope that's your commitment. I want to be part of a healthy church. You want to be part of a healthy church. So let's work together to this end. If you haven't been here for the whole series, or if you don't remember a whole lot of what was said, it's all available to you. And you can go back and watch some of those videos and see the profile of a healthy church. And before we end, just as a matter of completeness, let's read 12 to 15 and finish the book. Paul says, now my wife can zip up her Bible. That's okay. He's saying, I'm never sitting on the front row again. Titus chapter 3, verse 12. Paul ends the book, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the relevance and the practicality of your word. We just pray that you would help us as a church to bow the knee, to submit to your instructions for the church. Lord, we recognize that Calvary Baptist Church is not our church. It's your church. We're stewards. And so, Lord, help us to be your vessels, your servants, your stewards, used of you. Um, to live out the Christian life as you've designed it and to conduct church the way that you've designed it. And Lord, our ultimate desire is to please you in all of this. So continue to give us guidance. Help us to apply so much of what we've learned in the book of Titus. And we pray that Calvary Baptist Church would be a church for your glory. Continue to help us. We recognize we don't have everything figured out and we recognize that we must continually reform, continually be molded and shaped by your word. So help us to change where change needs to be. Change needs to take place and reinforce those areas where we are doing things according to Your plan. Help us to do them even more. Expose in us things that need to be purged, um, and help us to carry out Your design for the church. As inconvenient as they might be, as contradicting uh, of our desire as they might be, help us to just submit to Your design. And now, Lord, we pray this morning for any who are here who have not yet come to Christ. We pray that You'd work in their hearts. Pray that You'd. Give them an understanding of their need for Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. We pray that they give their lives over to him. And uh, Lord, we thank you that you're still saving souls and building your church. In the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.